Hi there, I'm Dan, and welcome, or welcome back, maybe, to the Shaw Vineyard Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take just a moment to subscribe in iTunes or in your podcast app of choice. That way, you can get every message from our church straight away on whatever device best suits you. You know, it's our hope that the message that you're about to hear in this episode would encourage you to take your best next step in your faith journey. So let's get straight into it. three of our um, people together, speakers, people from our congregation, and we ask them to prepare the best nine-minute message they can possibly think of. Um, And so it refers to the things that are on their heart, the things that God's done in their lives, um, all sorts of background things that they um, get the opportunity to to work with over, you know, two or three weeks. And and all of the guys who are going to be speaking tonight have worked particularly hard to um, to be able to present to you tonight. So we're pretty we're pretty excited about um, being together um, tonight for our nines service. Um, and so we're going to be starting today with um, somebody that we possibly know well, um, but Matt Butler. Uh, he's our children's pastor here at Shaw Vineyard, which is relevant to us in terms of our morning congregation in particular, but also our evening congregation this year. Uh, he also works with our youth. He's been around since he was a youth, really, himself. Um, and um, he is going to come and share with us. So come on up. Let's, let's give him a hand as he comes. In the context of Matt's life, he has this um, time of year, yeah, because it's a nine, not a 12. That's really important. So um, he has uh, a lot of fun in his life balancing his career and, and his job as a lawyer um, with his role here as our children's pastor. Um, and he sometimes gets mixed up on a Sunday, isn't quite sure whether he's uh, got a, a bunch of young criminals or, or whether during the week he's got some criminals who should be in children's church or should have been in children's church along the way. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely along the way. So this is Matt, and he is going to share with us. Look forward to it. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Vic. Um, I'm just going to start my timer, start my timer right now, so I can keep to that nine minutes. Um, and I guess in typical kids' pastor fashion, I thought I would dive deep into one of the like top tier Bible stories. So we're just going to jump straight into Daniel six. No time for for faffing around at the start. Um, and because this is a nice short sermon, I you can open up your Bibles to Daniel 6, but I'm just going to give you what I call the nine-minute sermon version of Daniel 6. So this is the story of Daniel in the lion's den, so be prepared for a fast one. So Daniel was just a great guy. Everybody loved Daniel. King Darius, he loved Daniel so much that he put him in charge of all of his advisors. And I guess in a classic case of biblical tall poppy syndrome, those advisors weren't too happy about this. So they started gathering dirt on Daniel and were extremely unsuccessful because Daniel was a great guy, as I said before. Um, So they decided instead of gathering dirt, they would scheme up a sneaky plan to get Daniel. And the sneaky plan involved them looking at Daniel's life and seeing that the things that Daniel did were really, really in line with his devotion and service to God. He prayed religiously three times a day, morning, noon, and night, as um, as was his practice. And so they thought, okay, let's get him on this. They went to the king with, a, with their sneaky plan, got him to sign a, um, an edict or a decree that made this illegal, and then they went in and busted into Daniel's house and arrested him for, for doing what he did. Daniel didn't change anything. He didn't close his windows. He kept on praying, windows wide open towards Israel. And so they took him to the king, 
and they said, okay, you now need to throw him in the lion's den. This is what happens. The king clearly wasn't stoked because Daniel was his favorite guy and he now had to throw him to the lions. And so king throws Daniel to the lions, hopes that Daniel's God will save him, and then has a rough night of sleep, comes back in the morning and calls down just hoping that Daniel's still there. And Daniel still is there because that's the way the story goes. And if you've spent more than five weeks in a children's program, you'll know that Daniel's safe. Um, so the king pulls Daniel out, out of the lion's den and throws the rest of the advisors and their wives and children in as well because he's a biblical king and why not? Um, we're going to rush past the brush past that like act of gratuitous violence right there and, um, and dive a little bit deeper into Daniel's prayer practices. But before we get started on that, I think it's really important to know the context. So the thing that this 1600s L'Oreal for Lions advert gets wrong is Daniel wasn't a young man there. He wasn't that half-naked young man sitting there. Daniel had been in captivity for a long time. Daniel was old. He had established reputation in the kingdom. He was regarded as someone of high character, and he held a really high position. So the Medo-Persian Empire was a pretty intense place, and this is where Daniel sits. This sits a little bit later on in Daniel as well. He's already interpreted some of the, some of the dreams. The story about the fiery furnace has happened. And I guess that's where we start. With the question that everybody asks when they hear this story, it's why didn't Daniel just shut the window? Why didn't Daniel pray a bit differently for a month while this edict was in place? I know that a lesser man like myself would have definitely done that. I, would probably, I reckon I'd probably still pray, still pray, but... I definitely don't think I would have done it with the windows wide open. So I guess that leaves us with that C.S. Lewis-esque conclusion where we have three options. Either Daniel was just a, a raving lunatic and he wanted to face the lions head on. Or, as my sermon title indicates, he just really liked lions. Really liked underfed, angry lions with a taste for human blood. And I think that would kind of put him in the first category as well. Or there's something more to the story. And... I think that, based on the fact that I've still got five minutes left in my sermon, there definitely is something more to the story. So if we look again at that context, in the, in the context of Daniel's prayer practices, we see something in the book of Daniel called a chiasm. So this is a kind of a poetic or literary structure in the Aramaic part of the book of Daniel that the first part relates to a last part, and the second part relates to the second last part, etc., etc. So that goes to say that the story of Daniel in the lion's den relates to another story in Daniel. That story is that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace, and I guess that's another top-tier Bible story. But I think that the common threads that run through these two stories are where this talk really comes to, comes to fruition. And I would say that these are the common threads. I'm sorry for the spelling error in the, in the second one. Couldn't change it. Um, the first is that their decisions were based on principles. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow before the statue because that was in line with the principles that they had in the Ten Commandments and the way that they outlived their faith. Daniel didn't change his prayer practices because that was his principle. His principle was that his relationship with God was the most important thing. And I guess that leads into the second thing is that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in tune with what God was wanting them to do. They were in tune with the will of God, and they knew that their heart 
and that their actions were informed by the principles that were in line with their relationship with God. And the last thing, and this is the, this is the central thing that holds these two stories together and makes them stand out thousands of years later, is this act of what I've called radical nonconformity. When faced with a fiery furnace or a death by lion's den, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego chose to, to stick with their principles. They chose not to conform with the easy option of shutting the window or bowing just once. And they chose to, to act in radical nonconformity. And so that begs the question of, but we don't have lion's dens. We don't have crazy kings and fiery furnaces in 2019 Auckland, New Zealand. So when you, when you read the story, you can't directly apply it to your life. You can't just say, okay, when my jealous ass buddies go and um, go to the king and make what I'm doing illegal, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna conform. Um, you have to look at it in the context of today. And so, so what? And I think the learnings from what we have today is that we may not have a lion's den or a fiery furnace, but what we do have is we have the subversive pressure of a culture that pushes us away from our principles. A culture that pushes us away from our relationship with God towards just fitting in with whatever the world is doing. And I think that the learnings from Daniel can really inform the way that we look at this principle of radical nonconformity. And I think that it might not mean throwing ourselves in the way of a lion's den or a fiery furnace, but it might mean every day standing up for what we believe in and for, for our relationship with God. And so I'd like to challenge you guys to, to do three things that can help you with this radical nonconformity. The first being asking yourself this question. Asking yourself, how am I relating to the culture around me? Am I just the same as everyone else? Or am I gonna live like, like Daniel, who distinguished himself from other people by his strength of character, his principles? Am I, as it says in the New Testament, am I not gonna conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the new, renewing of my mind? The second, the second of these points is, and we like to say this in Chauvinian, that we are John 519 people, that we can only do what we see the Father doing. And I think that the way that Daniel got in tune with what the Father is doing is he developed that relationship through prayer. If you listened to Vic's sermon two weeks ago, you probably, you probably gathered that you don't have to do exactly what Daniel did. You don't have to pray morning, noon, and night every single day out of your window facing Jerusalem. What you can do is find a way that you can pray and that you can develop your relationship with God so that you can see what the Father is doing. And I guess my last thing is that this is the question that I ask myself when reading this story, is whether my relationship with God is the thing that forms my principles, whether my actions come from my relationship with God, because radical nonconformity means nothing if it doesn't stem out of our relationship with God, if it doesn't come from the fact that we are truly, wholly, and completely in love with God. So to answer the question in the title of my sermon, did Daniel just really like lines? I think the answer is a resounding no. And I think the answer to that question really is Daniel just really loved God. He really loved God and he, he acted out that way. 
he acted in radical nonconformity because he really loved God. Okay, that's my, that's my nine minutes. I'm looking forward to seeing Stephen Breyer. Let's give him a hand. That's so good. Well, the things you learn in children's church these days, that's just, just absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Matt. So second up tonight, we have Briar. Um, Briar is a graphic designer, and um, she has an, 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 an unhealthy obsession with fries and hot sauce, enjoys a good pair of socks. I wondered if that was a, a, a typo, but enjoys a good pair of socks and uh, eating Rupert's cooking. And apart from that, she has a great message to share with us tonight. So let's give her a hand as she comes, eh? Hello. I am not going to time myself because um, that'll make me very nervous. So I might go a little bit over time, but that'll not be any more than 20% Vic, so it'll be fine. Um, okay, so my talk tonight is on Mary Magdalene. And I just want to start off with a with some statues, these are, sorry, I'm a little bit nervous. These are sarcophagus. They're on the sarcophagus um, of old carved stone coffins for rich Christians, and they're held in the Vatican Museum. Um, Joan Taylor and Helen Bond have done some detective work on earthing the female reason behind the success of Jesus Christ. Uh, Joan Taylor is a King's College London professor of Christian's origin, and Helen is a professor that specializes in the New Testament. They went to this uh, Vatican Museum in Rome and they found this uh, carving, this sculpture that depicted the scene of Jesus raising Lazarus from the death, from the dead. Martha and Mary of Bethany were close to Jesus who were their teacher. And on the earliest sarcophagus, um, dated around 2 AD from the third century, Jesus and Lazarus are in the tomb and Mary is kneeling by Jesus with Martha behind him. The women are the same size as Jesus, as you can see. In the second one, on the right-hand side, Mary is a little bit more, um, I guess you could say submissive, a bit lower down and not as, as an important part of the scene. Then we have the third and the fourth. You can see on the left-hand side, that little footstool is Mary, that tiny little, little thing down the, down the corner. And then in the fourth one, she's completely taken out of the scene. Um, so growing up, I was confronted with the underlying concept that my gender could perhaps be the defining characteristic of whether or not I am useful to the divine. I think I'm going, if, if I'm going to be truly vulnerable, as a woman, I've always felt like a bystander to the gospel story. This all boiled down to one question so greatly articulated by my mother, <laughs> who grew up in an open reverend church. When she, st when she started asking bigger questions, she put it like this. If the kingdom of God has second-class citizens, then do I want to be a part of this kingdom? The overwhelming sense that the female character of the great gospel story were not just simply overlooked, but even perhaps ridden out of history. What did this mean for me? And after coming across these, these sculptures, I have the, sorry, I, <laughs> it's kind of vulnerable, sorry, I'm, deep breath. <laughs> How Mary seemed to be had seemed to be sculpted out. I faced a very I was faced very confrontationally with the desire to know more about the great woman of the Bible, Mary Magdalene, for example, the character that I once heard preach as a prostitute, whom had seven demons cast out of her, being the extent of my knowledge. A prostitute, a saint, 
a sign of penance. These were all the different ways that Mary Magdalene has been shown. She's always laying, kind of helplessly looking up to the sky, um, beautiful, white, which is interesting. Um, you know, crying, look, like that's kind of all of these representations of Mary that I have come across. Um, being interested in art history, um, it's, yeah, this, this seems to be the way that she's been painted. So who actually is Mary Magdalene? Some scholars believe that also Mary Martha's, that she's also Mary Martha's sister. So there are different Marys and we might conclude that this might not be the exact Mary that I'm talking about, but it's still interesting nevertheless. Um, there is no historical evidence that she was a prostitute from the New Testament. One can conclude that Mary of Magdala, her hometown being a village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, was a leading figure among those attracted to Jesus. She has been seen to appear in many interesting pictures. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the, sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to, her and, came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Not only did Jesus refuse to intervene, he welcomed the posture of Mary. So there's two things that I want to look at here. First thing is sat at the Lord's feet. I think sometimes when we read this, we kind of overlook it and we think that she's just joining in on the Bible study. Sitting at the feet of a rabbi was a specific rabbinic expression. And there is a very deep and complex world of meaning of the word sitting at the feet. Jesus is a rabbi and a rabbi had a particular way of interpreting the Torah. So different rabbis and teachers had different ways, different things that they emphasized. And a rabbi's interpretations of the Torah were called the rabbi's yoke. So when you became a student of a rabbi, you were taking that rabbi's yoke upon you. To follow a rabbi meant that you were learning how to do what the rabbi does. And you were only accepted as a student if the rabbi believed you could take on the yoke as they do. Um, I got a lot of this interesting stuff from Rob Bell. And Rob Bell goes on to say that it's important to consider the contrast between Western and Eastern education. It's not about soaking it all in, it's about doing it. So um, an example that I can use is, you know, if, we, if, if one of you, Vic went to a painting class and he goes and I say, well, how was the painting class? What were you doing? Like, what, what, did you, what did you accomplish? And he said, oh, you know, we sat, we watched the painter paint some pictures and then, you know, we, we got in our cars and we went home. And then next week went by and I asked him, so how was your painting class this week? And he said, we sat and we watched the painter and then we went in our cars and got home. And I think the difference here is that sometimes we are taught knowledge um, in our Western society and it's just like, cool, like you consume it and you have it and you know it. Whereas in Eastern society, when you're taught these things, it's, it's that you, you're going to do it. It's not just that you know it, it's that you do it. When we see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, it is a term to describe the rabbi-student relationship disciples sat at their rabbi's feet. It means you are becoming their disciples. Mary wanted to join a revolution. 
in the first century Jewish world of Jesus, the general rule was that women did not sit at the feet of rabbis. This was unheard of because you could only do this if the rabbi believed you could do the same as them. Mary has chosen what is better. It seems that he celebrates this defiance of the norm. This is so unusual to the time. I think we can overlook this and think that it's not, it's, it's not something that's revolutionary, but it really is. It's disruptive. Women were not students. Men were. The social order is being challenged. This is not how it works here. And Jesus is like, well, it is now. It's a new social order. The story is not as simple as it seems. It's so much richer. Not only is a woman defying culture, but this is a man not only welcoming this posture, but celebrating it. It's a joy to Jesus. I have to repeat this for the woman in here because this made my heart sing. It's a joy to Jesus. Mary wasn't afraid to offend. She wasn't held back by the intense pressures and expectations and her fullness was lived because she had the guts to do it. I believe Jesus was here to simply, wasn't here wasn't here to simply spread love and fluff. He was here to stir the pot. Rob Bell puts it, a reordering of the fundamental social structures that keep people oppressed and disempowered. This Mary is a strong woman who defies cultural conceptions of what women can and can't do. She knows that this is knowingly disruptive. She knows that she's been disruptive. And she knows what she is doing is not what you're supposed to do. And God, Jesus loves this. He asks for it. Her courage and determination is not a threat. It's a joy. Jesus comes to Mary's defense. And maybe in this moment, he is stating that this is her path. And she has the guts to walk it. You seek first the kingdom of God, that what you were made to give to the world and the structures and the social standards you live in pale in comparison to the richness and fullness of living fully drenched in the intention of your fullness. I think I would like to go on to a Richard War quote because I just love the way he, that he speaks and he says things a lot better than I could. I'd like to reclaim Mary Magdalene as the apostolic partner of Jesus, as one who ministers in a tradition that was not just about male and female equality. Certainly it was about that. And Jesus was way in front of the pack. Equality was just the starting point for everything else. Learning more about Mary's story, and there are so many more powerful women that I do not know about yet, has opened me to realize, to be released from the question, are there second class citizens in the kingdom of God? I have started to realize that I wasn't created to be a bystander in the kingdom of God. I was created to stand, to show up, to have guts to walk my path, to have the strength and determination to live in fullness of my disruptive, creative, question raising, fluffy shoe wearing self. I must say that that is, I have to say here that that is not everyone's path and everybody's path is different. And so I'm not saying be a Mary. I'm not saying do exactly what Mary does. What I'm saying is that Jesus doesn't define your usefulness by the world around you or by your gender, to put it simply. It's not, consider, it's not the constricted or the social norms that we live in, consciously or not. Your gender does not define your path. Seek the kingdom of God first and what you're meant to give to this world. Remember, this is ever-changing and fluid then have the guts to walk it. Jesus loves guts. And I just want to end with what Mary Magdalene might have actually looked like with this beautiful piece of art. Um, I thought it was just wonderful. I just wanted to share it at the end. So yeah, that's me.
Isn't that fantastic? Thank you so much, Briar. So our third speaker tonight is Steve Irwin. Steve Irwin. But unlike his namesake, he is terrified of crocodiles and snakes. Um, and in fact, he's a banker, which I guess you don't get a lot of um, crocodiles and snakes uh, in that. Worked for an international bank for five years. This has brought him to New Zealand from France, and you might actually detect a different country when he opens his mouth. He is uh, running his first and last marathon in two weeks' time. <laughs> so we'll hand it over to you, Steve. Thank you, Vic. So my talk is entitled Restored, Finding the Balance. So I'm going to start off by reading a passage from the Bible, and it's from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 3 to 7. But just to set the context before, this here uh, passage comes just after the chapter where Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal on, on top of Mount Carmel. And in, in that there, he uh, literally calls down fire from heaven, and he has this almighty victory. And following that there, uh, King Ahab at the time was married to Jezebel, and Jezebel says, I'm going to get Elijah for what he's done. I'm going to kill him. I swear to it, or else I'll die myself. So this is the passage. It's when Elijah saw how things were, he ran for dear life to Beersheba, far in the south of uh, Judah. He left his young servant there, and then went into the desert another day's journey. He came to a lone broom bush and collapsed in a shade wanting in the worst way to be done with it all and to just die. Enough of this, God. Take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave. Exhausted, he fell asleep under the lone boom brush. Suddenly, an angel shook him awake and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and to his surprise, right by his head were a loaf of bread baked on some coals and a jug of water. He ate the meal and went back to sleep. The angel of God came back shook him awake again and said, get up and eat some more. You've got a long journey ahead of you. So in this here passage, I just find it amazing that even Elijah struggled. So Elijah's like one of the heroes of the Bible. And here we see him, he had this almighty victory and we can see he has such an evident relationship with God. And he had such strong faith that he was able to call fire down from heaven. And I just find it incredible that, I don't know about everyone else here, but whenever you hear about these here heroes in the Bible, and uh, you just, you, you put them up this pedestal thinking like they were just not human, they were just something else. And yet we see Elijah here, he's in the pits of depression after this here almighty victory. And I just, I just love how real that is. And just linking that back to last week's uh, service where uh, Calvin and Victoria were talking about mental well-being. I just love how we're making this more normal in the church, that it is okay not to be okay. I know it's a cliche, but it's a cliche that we all need to hear. And next is that God was present, and he heard Elijah's cries. So even in the desert, under the broom bush, by himself, God was still there, and he heard his anguish, he heard his cries. I just, I just love that there. So maybe there's people here tonight, and you felt you're in the desert, even you might have your friends, your family around but yet you still feel that God's not hearing you and you're alone, but uh, I can assure you God is with you. And he was, in this passage, you can even see in the middle of the desert, on his own, God was still there. And finally, it's uh, God tended to his physical and emotional needs. So in his, in his desperation, in his depression, what did God send? Did he send purpose-driven life down to help uh, Elijah? Absolutely not. He, uh, he sent some, some uh, company with an angel and he's given some bread, some nourishment for his body and some water. 
So this brings me to my next point, is uh, there's a 17th century Puritan minister in England named Richard Baxter, and he did some uh, uh, research into what was known as melancholy in the time, and in modern day speak, that would be known as depression. And he, he saw there was four key facets of human well-being, the physical, the psychological, the moral, and the spiritual. So my thinking with this here is, uh, is that as a church, can, can we find that balance? Can we be a church that restores? So my point here is, uh, I feel like in the church, it can be, sometimes it can be extreme. So you can have this here like level of superstition where you think like everything's the devil. It's like my phone battery's died, it's the devil. Or if your, your shoelaces come undone, it's the devil. Whereas you have like the other extreme, which can be equally as dangerous. So it's like nothing can be spiritual. Everything is real, everything is physical. So it's just finding that balance. So seeing the, the physical. So uh, Richard Baxter's point was that the physical is maybe perhaps you're feeling depressed because you have a physical illness, you have a disease. You're, uh, you might be injured in some way. The psychological was maybe you do have an imbalance in your brain, maybe there's something not going quite right. And the moral, perhaps you're feeling some shame about something, perhaps you're, uh, perhaps you're feeling guilt. And then there's the spiritual where sometimes, yes, the, the devil can target us. And uh, as a church, we can get alongside people and pray alongside them and just partner with them. And is, can, can we be a church that's real? Uh, no one's perfect. And when I read the Bible, you see Jesus' uh, challenge when he was confronted. He's like, why are you hanging about with these immoral people? With, uh, with the tax collectors, with the ladies of the night. And he says, like, who is it needs a doctor? Is it the well or is it the sick? And of course it's the sick. So as a church, can we, can we be real and just say, we, we, we've, we've all sinned. We've all, uh, we've all done the wrong thing from time to time. And sometimes we do feel sad. And finally, who's got a place in your life? So maybe you, someone springs to mind quite uh, quickly and you can think uh, of someone right away and maybe someone you can invite around for dinner. Maybe it's someone you can just go for a walk along the beach with. So my, that brings me to my final point. Is, uh, I just love the way this here ends. It's uh, when the angel says, get up and eat some more. You've got a long journey ahead of you. So can we be a church that restores? Can we be a church that looks after people and all aspects, maybe it's the physical, maybe it's the psychological, the moral, or the spiritual. Can we maybe pray with people? That's me. Thank you, thank you. Hey, hasn't that been amazing? From Matt, it seems a long time ago already, Matt, you know, sort of thing, to Briar um, and to Steve. Let's give them all a hand, and they've done a fantastic job. Um, but, you know, uh, this is not kind of a filler service. Oh, you know, let's get a few people to sort of say a few nice things. This is a service in which we invited people to come and to share in a way that we feel like God would be speaking to us. So I'd love, as we finish, to ask you to stand. And we're just going to spend a few moments inviting God to speak to us out of one of these speakers or maybe all of these speakers and just to give him a, a little opportunity rather than just to go away and, and say, well, it was a, um, a smorgasbord of ideas. But just to, just to land a few things. It is beautiful that we know some more about Briar. It's beautiful that we've got to meet Steve a little bit more, that we now know Matt a little bit more. That's, that's a real benefit as well. But we would really trust that, that God has something for us 
in what we've heard tonight. And so if you would go back to, to Matt, some of the things he was talking about was the whole idea of radical nonconformity, um, getting back to our principles, standing up for what is right, Daniel's love of God. Those are just what I wrote down. You may remember different things, and he may have said things. Go with those things. You go to Briar, and I just love those dual ideas of sitting at the Lord's feet and choosing what is better. And for me, there's just a highlight of her last line, you know, kind of, um, Jesus loves guts, you know, and I, you know, kind of, I wonder whether that might be a word for me. And um, so, but there'll be other things perhaps for you. And then for Steve, talking about Elijah, obviously the struggles, but God is present and hears our cries. I wonder who need, needed, needs to hear that tonight. Or well, the challenge for us as a church, you know, that it be a church that restores and heals. You know, what does that mean for, for you and for me to be those sorts of people? And who has God placed in your life? So just, just a few ideas that they presented there that may or may not be important to you. So let's just pray. And it'll be perhaps helpful to close your eyes because we just, you know, we're a little less distracted when we do so. And, and let's just invite the presence of God to be here with us tonight and so God we just come before you and and we just allow ourselves to to wander over without without necessarily needing to piece all of everything together what Matt had to say to us out of Daniel and Lord we invite you just to continue to speak and to highlight some things what Briar had to say out of Mary and Lord we we just present ourselves before you with those ideas and what Steve had to say out of Elijah. And Lord, we just take a few moments to reflect, to hear, and Lord, to be moved, changed, healed and drawn close. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. And if you're in the Forest Hill or the Bays area of Auckland's North Shore, we would so love to have you at our next service this Sunday. You can get details on service times and more info on our kids and student environments by visiting svc.org.nz. That's svc.org.nz. Hope you have a great day and we'll see you next time here on the podcast.